stickies. Do you, do you mind if I take the... That's a good idea. Before we begin our lesson this morning, I want to take a, a moment here to address some uh, unpleasant excitement that we had as a congregation this week. Um, as many of you know, uh, there was a scam email that got sent to a lot of the members of our church. Uh, individual posing as me uh, had created an additional email. Uh, Chris, well, actually there were two of them, I think we, we figured out. Uh, they came out uh, asking for members of the church to send uh, a response, uh, letting them know that they would be willing to help in a situation in which uh, I was not to be contacted by phone or email address. Um, I want to tell you this morning, if you ever receive an email from a staff member of the church that says, don't contact me to verify this, it's a scam. Um, and, and it's... It's not a scam that is uncommon. In fact, there, uh, Ben was saying just this morning that there are a lot of businesses that have faced situations where uh, members of the business, uh, employees of the business receive an email from the CEO or the head of marketing or someone who is a significant member uh, of the, the uh, managing operations of a particular business that says, you know, I'm in a really important meeting right now. Uh, you can't respond to me via phone at the moment, but if you could do me a favor, just send me a quick message. Um, these individuals, they, they can start a free Gmail account or a free Yahoo email account or whatever they want, and they oftentimes emulate an actual email address you know. And so I want to give you just a couple of pieces of feedback this morning on how to make sure that you don't fall victim to a scam like this in the future. Always, always check to see if the email that you've received came from a verified email address that you know is associated with the individual that is emailing you. Um, in this case, the individual had kind of mashed up two of my email addresses, my personal Gmail account, which I'm going to tell you this morning, is chris.p.dunning at gmail.com. If it comes from Gmail and it's not that email address, it's not me. My other email address is my work email, chris at newbergcfc.com. Every email that comes from the chris at newbergcfc.com email is one that is 100% secure. I want to let you know this morning that our email servers were not hacked. Bob Lubin did a really fantastic job of locking all of this down. You can trust any email that you have sent to or received from any uh, 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 Newburgh Church of Christ, NewburghCFC.com email address. Under no circumstances do you need to worry about personal information you've sent to Kyle or I or Norma at that domain name, okay? Uh, if, if we've been talking about struggles you've had or difficulties that you've faced or personal information that you've shared with a staff member of this church, no one outside of that staff member has access to that email. And so your information is secure as far as that's concerned. We don't know how anyone received the email addresses that are being used. Uh, we can't isolate a single source because there are some emails that are not contained in our paper directory. And there are some emails that are not contained in our online directory uh, that were emailed to. And so we want to let you know, we don't know where the emails were acquired, but someone acquired the emails and have been sending them to you uh, because they're connected in some way to the email addresses that we use. 
the elders have uh, discussed this. I've been out at camp, and so I haven't had a lot of opportunity to visit with them. But if you've been um, contacted by a scam email, and you need to find a way to make something right that's gone wrong, uh, we, want to, we want to extend to you the opportunity to visit with the elders and find a way to fix that situation. Um, and so let us know if you've been harmed in any way in this scam email situation. Uh, finally, one thing that I want to say, and Bob Lubin and I were discussing this, under no circumstance will any member of the church who is a, a part of the church, uh, an employee of the church, will we ask you to spend money for the church without verifying with us first. Um, it's very important for you to know that we don't have a habit or a routine of asking you to spend money on behalf of the church unless it's something that we've already arranged for you to be reimbursed by, and we will never rush you to commit to something like that. And so uh, I just want to tell you this morning that we, we are prepared to help you avoid any future scam emails. Um, it's a situation none of us really wanted to address. Norma's been receiving scam emails saying that, uh, hey, this is Pastor Chris. Uh, I'm in a very busy meeting while we're sitting in a meeting with one another. And so Norma's been receiving these for a long time. We never thought that it would extend beyond uh, individuals within our, our employment as a congregation. Um, I think Kyle's received a couple of these, but uh, we, we knew uh, that scam emails were happening, but we were not prepared for it to extend to members of the congregation. And so uh, this is our, our opportunity to tell you if you have any questions, if something seems out of character in an email that you receive that you think is from one of us or from one of the elders, always call us. Always verify. If we don't answer the phone, don't act on the email you've received. All right? Um, that's all I'm going to say about that this morning because we have better things to talk about today. Uh, we are continuing a series on the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and the wonderful thing about uh, this series is that it's actually lined up unintentionally but surprisingly well with our class that we've been doing on Sunday mornings in the book of Galatians. Uh, as I was looking at uh, the text that we're going to read in Galatians for our class this morning, it was, it was eerie how much of what I was going to be sharing from Deuteronomy lined up with what it is we're going to talk about today. Um, Moses has recounted to the Israelite people, this is, this is our history. This is who we are. This is where we've come from. These are the great and wonderful things God has done for us. And these are many of the things that he intends to do for us now. And then he's, he's kind of given us this introduction to the law and said, I'm, I'm about to recount to you all the rules, the statutes, the guidelines, the commands that God has given to you as a people so that when you enter the land, you may possess it and that it may be well for you in that land. Moses is, is working towards a moment where he's going to really highlight the significant relationship that God wants to have with his people. He's, he's warned them not to forget that the things that they're about to receive and the righteousness that people are going to credit to them, they're not their own. They haven't earned these things, but the God who loves them and shows gracious favor to them is giving them these things. And he begins to tell them the Ten Commandments. He, he recounts to them the moment in which they received it. It says, The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain. This is uh, Deuteronomy 5, verse 4 through 6. The Lord spoke with you face to face 
at the mountain. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. If you go back to the book of Exodus, you may read it and find that you don't see that happening. You might, you might encounter it and be like, well, I'm not sure that that actually happened, Moses. I think you're rewriting history. Well, we have to remember, the book of Exodus doesn't set out to tell us every single thing that happened at the foot of Mount Sinai, but to encapsulate the sense of the scope of what happened to let us know that ultimately it was Moses who ended up having a personal encounter with God on top of the mountain and brought down the law and shared it with the Israelite people. That's that's what the author of Exodus intended to set out and do. But the author of Deuteronomy is trying to stress to us in the words of Moses what happened at the mountain. And if you're not familiar with the Deuteronomy passage, sometimes the story of the Exodus doesn't quite land the way that I think it's intended to land. See, there's this moment at which, in the book of Exodus, the Israelite people are at the foot of the mountain, and God says, do not come up the mountain, don't even touch the mountain, do not approach the mountain, I want you to stay at the foot of the mountain. And so it seems as though God is telling the Israelite people, I don't want to be close to you, and it would be dangerous for you to be close to me. That's how a lot of people have read the book of Exodus before. That God God wants to be close, but not too close. That God wants a relationship with his people, but he wants it at arm's length. And that what he really desires is for there always to be someone that kind of stands between him and the people. That the Israelites, you know, they're his chosen people, but you know what? I'm going to put someone between us, and if you really want to talk to me, you've got to talk to Moses first, and then he'll come up the mountain, and he'll have a conversation with me, and then he'll come back down. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when you have have a, a CEO, and the CEO's assistant is the only one you ever interact with. Moses is like the CEO's assistant, you know? The boss is too busy. He doesn't have time for you. Talk to the assistant. The assistant will relay the message, and then the the assistant will relay the response. That's kind of the image a lot of people have of the God of the book of Exodus. And yet here, Moses says, you saw him face to face. He spoke to you face to face. The whole assembly of the people of God at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, It wasn't as though God was distant from you. He spoke to you. And Moses is going to clarify a situation that has oftentimes really confused me. He's going to to clarify what the relationship intended between God and the Israelite people is. Out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time. Now notice, he's saying, I stood between you. But he's not saying, I spoke on God's behalf. To declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire. And you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's this introductory moment. I am the Lord your God. I brought you up out of the house of slavery. God speaks to the people and he identifies himself and he gives them an understanding of who he is and he he invites them to come closer. But out of their fear... They choose not to. 
And so Moses then tells them the Ten Commandments here. He repeats to them the Ten Commandments. He expounds on them. He, he tells them, you know, this is the commandment. This is what it means. And, and it is just the Ten Commandments, the ones, in, in fact, which God had written down on a tablet for the people. This is the moment at which he really emphasizes to them, this is the law that God gave you, but you were too afraid to approach him face to face. Moving just a little ahead in the chapter. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. If we stopped right there, it would be like, Wow, that's wonderful. God has made himself known to his people, and they recognize his glory, and they've heard his voice. Isn't that a wonderful, beautiful relationship? That's what God desired, but this is the response of the people. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. We've seen it happen, and we didn't die, but you know what? If we continue to see it happen, we're going to die. They have the evidence that they can be in the presence of God, that he can speak to them directly, that his glory can be made known to them, and they didn't die. They say, but you know what? It's just a little too much for us, a little too close. We kind of want to keep them at arm's length. It's not God that wants to keep the people at arm's length. It's the people who say, you know what? This is about as close as we want to get. Can we have some space here? And so they tell Moses, and Moses recounts this, go near. You, you, you go near. And hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us. All that the Lord our God will speak to, notice now it's no longer us, speak to you, and we will hear and do it. I think this is supposed to be a disappointing moment in Scripture for us. I think we're supposed to walk away having read this feeling like, what a, what a missed opportunity. The God of all creation has spoken face to face with a nation of slaves and said, I am the God who has brought you out of slavery. I am the Lord, your God. Let me tell you my commands for you. I will give you a law. I will make you a righteous people. You are my inheritance. God offers these beautiful words to the people. And they say, you know what? It's amazing we haven't died yet, but can you, can you take a big step back? Because you're just a little too much for us. Moses, we want you to be our assistant. You relay the messages between us because this is just a little too much. It's a little too close, a little too near. I genuinely believe that the Israelite people were responsible for creating a barrier between themselves and God. We need a bit of a buffer 
between us and you. So Moses, you be the gopher. You bring back what it is God wants us to do, and we'll be okay. And I can only imagine how that had to make God feel. A God who was prepared to speak to his people directly. To have a face-to-face relationship with them. I mean, unless we think Moses is a liar here, God had a face-to-face conversation with his people, and they said, it's just a little too much. Can you take one big step back, God? And so, what ends up happening is that Moses does relay between the people and Yahweh. Moses says, I did go back up the mountain, and God revealed to me all the statutes, all the regulations, all the commands, all the decrees, and I brought them to you, and I have told you them before, and I am going to tell them to you now. But in case you confuse the messenger with the one who has sent the message, I want to tell you who you're dealing with. And this becomes, as Ben said, the prayer for all generations for the Israelite people. It is the words that are written on their heart. Moses offers them this statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We read that sometimes and we think he's saying, you know, there is no other God but God. Well, that's, that's true. But that word there, one, is not about quantity. It's not about the, the um, uh, number of gods that you might enumerate. It's not even about the number of persons that God is, because we believe as Christians that God is three and one, that he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're Trinitarians. We believe that. It's a, a true statement about the God that we love and serve. But this is a statement that says, the Lord our God is singular. There is no one like him. He is unique. There is no other of his kind. Hear, O Israel, the, the, the Lord our God There is no one like him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses says, look, you've got a God who wants to be so near to you. He wants you to love him in the most profound way. A God who is unlike any other. And he's already stressed to the Israelite people that the other nations will look and say, is there any other nation whose God dwells so closely with them? Is there any other nation who is so righteous because of the decrees and laws that they have been given? Any other nation that is so just? He says, before you begin to write these words on your heart, know first the God that you serve. Don't confuse him with me. I am am the intermediary you have asked for. 
But your God is singular, one of a kind, unique, no one like him. Maybe don't confuse the God who asked for a relationship with you with the laws he's about to give you. To me, that was a a striking moment uh, reading Galatians this week along with this passage from Deuteronomy, something that Paul is going to emphasize in Galatians, if you're with us for class this morning, is that the law was an intermediary. It was a guardian. It was something that kind of stood between God and the people to maybe allow a kind of relationship that someone had rejected at some point. Who could have possibly rejected that relationship? And then I go back and I read Deuteronomy and I'm like, oh my goodness, Moses is telling us that God wanted to dwell with his people. He wanted a face-to-face relationship with them. He wanted them to hear his voice. He wanted it to be one-to-one. And they rejected it. What does it mean for the law to be a guardian, an intermediary? I think Moses is making it really clear here. Look, you've traded the one-on-one relationship for a set of rules that are being relayed to you. Don't confuse the rules for your God. Now, the rules will reveal to you a lot of the heart of your God. The law will reveal to you what he desires from you, what he wants from you. But if you forget the relationship, if you, can, if you fail to love him with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, your whole body, if, if all of you is not in the relationship, the rules are meaningless. You can write them on your doorposts, and you can... Speak with them, uh, speak about them to your children, and you can, you know, memorize them and, and wear them on your forehead, and you can put them on your robes and your tassels, and you can talk about them all the time. But if they're uncoupled from the relationship of the God who wants a relationship with you, you've made for yourself the wrong God. And so I read this. And as I think about it, what I come to realize is that, of course, the ultimate solution to this is that God then will come and dwell among his people anyway. And he'll take a form that is somewhat less frightening than the fire on the mountain. He'll take a form that is that of a suffering servant, of the son of a carpenter, of a maybe you know, scripture is to be believed, kind of homely Jewish rabbi who wanders from place to place just showing loving kindness to those who are disenfranchised, ill, crippled, blind, and reminding people continually not to confuse the law for the God who has given the law. See, Jesus is the full embodiment of the relationship that God desired to have with his people from the very beginning. Jesus is God made manifest in a form that humanity can say, this, this is not a God to fear, but a God who loves. Fear him in knowing who he is and his power and his wonder and his splendor. But don't be afraid that he's a God who is rejecting you and keeping you at arm's length. This is the God who embraces, the God who touches, the God who heals, the God who speaks words of life. 
Don't think he's here to consume you like the fire on the mountain and you need to run in fear. Recognize that this is the God who wants to dwell among you. It's no wonder that John begins his gospel by saying that the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. That image of God coming and dwelling in the midst of his people, right? But instead of dwelling behind a curtain, he dwells in our likeness, which is his likeness. This morning, I want to encourage you to read Deuteronomy with this in mind. There's a big old chunk of law here. It's a lot to chew on, a lot to think about, a lot of decrees and statutes that are given to a people who are entering into a unique situation, a land that is given to them that will be theirs that they've not kept for themselves, that they've not built up. Again, next chapter, houses that you didn't build, cisterns that you didn't dig, vineyards that you didn't plant. God says, because I've given all of this to you, to maintain it, to keep it, I've got some expectations. Those chapters in here, I think there's 15 of them that are are primarily commands and laws and decrees. In many ways, they're an arbitration between the God of the universe and his people. If you don't want to work with me directly, you need the law. Paul would tell us, the God that we serve dwells within us now. And that his spirit is the one that guides us. The law is in fact written on our hearts and dwells within us because the one who wrote it dwells within us. We don't want to trade the law for the personal relationship. But if we have the personal relationship, the law is going to come pretty naturally. I don't know where you're at in this, this spectrum of maybe, maybe you feel like you need to be a rule keeper or God wants nothing to do with you. But I think oftentimes when we fall into this category, we really struggle to have that personal relationship because we're expecting that what God wants to do is find us slipping up so he can punish, so that he can harm, so that he can put us at arm's length. And in fact, I think God is oftentimes much more like a father who wants to put his arm around our shoulder and say, now, do you see how we did this wrong this time? Do you think maybe we can try it again, do it a little differently? Let's walk together. You don't need to write the laws on your doorposts in your household because I'm right here with you to walk you through this. I want to be clear. I think it's good to memorize scripture. In fact, uh, Brian and I were talking about this this morning. We have some some scripture written on the walls, and I've reached the point now. This was always our uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 on the back of the wall here. Uh, read it every morning, every Sunday morning to do our mic check, and at this point, I don't look at the, the wall anymore. You know, it just kind of immediately, I know the words that are going to come out. I, I said, maybe we should just put scriptures up on every single wall or space that we have in the building, and we'd all just start internalizing all these thoughts, which is a wonderful and glorious idea. Everyone should memorize scripture because it's a useful tool to have, But if we replace scripture for the guidance of the spirit, or if we replace the guidance of the spirit with scripture, 
and we remove the relationship, it can just become a bunch of words. And it can become a replacement for the relationship. But the second that the relationship exists, those words written on our hearts come to mean so much more to us. They are the words of a father guiding us. They are the words of a father providing us with wisdom that we do not have, perspective that we cannot possess on our own. I don't want us to make the same mistake that the Israelites made, saying, you know what, God, we'll just take the rules, you stay over there. Embrace the relationship that God has offered to us. The rules will remain. The expectations, the hopes will remain. But the relationship can't be sacrificed for the rules. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want a relationship with you. We don't want a Moses between us and you.